Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this program from the archives of Radio Curious, we talk about boys. Boys don't have an easy time growing up and maturing in our complex world these days. The same standard of behavior is frequently expected of boys and girls, often without recognizing the special and different needs of boys. Testosterone is a prime mover in the shaping of boys' behavior, resulting in their special and different needs. This program is the first in a two-part series from the archives of Radio Curious about boys with Michael Gurian, author of a 1997 book entitled The Wonder of Boys, What Parents, Mentors, and Educators Can Do to Shape Boys into Exceptional Men. I spoke with Michael Gurian in January 1998 from his home in Spokane, Washington, and asked him to begin by discussing the role that testosterone plays in shaping the lives of boys. for a minute, if I may, and ask about the, the spatial brain. Um, can you tell us more about that? Well, yeah, if you look, if, if you think about, um, uh, go back four million years and think about hunting, which is an object moving through space, right? There's an object, whatever the object is, and it's moving through physical space. That creature flying or running. Flying or running. And the, and the brain, the focus of the brain is on how can I get it? Because for the male, there's, there's, Having a child is not how he, he has his sacred activity because, in fact, he doesn't know who his kids are. Um, it's only very recently that males even knew who their own children were. So his sacred activity is, is 
getting that food, hunting it, getting it, bringing it back to his community and feeding his community. So that's pretty much the most important thing going on for him um, after the basic biology of reproduction. So uh, he, he, a lot of his brain system is set up around that hunting activity, and that, and that is true until about 10,000 years ago. Now, if you jump from 4 million years to 10,000 years, and you jump to now, 1998, uh, we'll notice that the male brain is, is almost obsessed with objects moving through space. So if we just look at, you know, it's easy, I suppose, for listeners to think about sports. That's a, that's a wonderful illustration of object moving through space and how, how much males love to sit and watch or to participate in the activity of chasing a ball or hitting a ball through space. Now that's an exact evolutionary mirror of what it would have been like three million years ago to be hunting. Uh, it's an object moving through space. So this spatial brain developed over millions of years and, and this is what we're talking about is a brain that's very architectural, that's very involved in how things exist in external space and how, the, how my body and my focus uh, fits in external space. This doesn't mean at all that female brain isn't spatial. Certainly her brain is spatial, but, but the male brain is, on average, much more spatial in the same way that the male brain has an emotional function, but the female brain is, on average, much more complex in its emotional function. And that's a result of four million years of this development. The female brain needed to be more complex emotionally because she had to raise kids. The male did not. Uh, the male brain needed to be more spatial because he had to hunt. The female did not. So that's not that's not what her brain developed to, to spend most of its time on. Of course, that creates great problems in our present world because our expectations are that male, male and female brain ought to be the same, but they are not the same. And... Um, of course, that creates problems for men and women trying to relate in marriages. But when we talk about kids, uh, uh, we can see the problems in a sort of less political way, let's say. Uh, not about marriage. We just look at little boys and girls and how they develop, and we say, oh, my gosh, yeah, look at that boy. Let's see. Uh, like we do studies of boys and girls and their physical activity, uh, three-year-old boys, and we find that the boys are ten times as likely to push themselves uh, through a room, in other words, to run through a room, than the girl is. Well, that's, that's the boy making him an object in space. He's experimenting with himself external uh, to himself, in other words, out in the spatial world, whereas the girl's more likely to want to sit with other people or with certain toys and uh, relate to the toys. And most of this is an unconscious behavior on the part of the child. Well, it's all just nature. Uh, yeah, it's all just nature. Uh, so unconscious would be a good word, um, or we could just say it's natural behavior. And again, we want to tell people we're averaging. There are some girls out there who are more physical than some little boys. But most of the time, uh, parents will find this. You were uh, talking about the uh, effects of testosterone, um, and we kind of got sidetracked on the, the spatial issue. Okay. Well, testosterone, see, what it does is it, it not only has its own function as a hormone, but it also instigates the creation of a brain system. And what that means is, is, that, is this. It's in the mother's womb. Uh, her ovaries secrete testosterone, and that's what creates the male brain in the boy, uh, you know, in the male fetus. And, in fact, we, we, we contract this very easily because when testosterone secretion has been retarded in some way, generally because of stress, in the mother's womb, uh, we can sometimes get a female brain, in other words, a male child, that is with testicles, uh, but who is born, and we realize later on in life, this child really has a female brain. Uh, we're talking about people who end up with sex change operations who just don't fit in their bodies. 
they're, they're, they feel like women in a man's body. Well, what happened was in the womb, um, uh, and by the way, a great resource for this, if people want to go beyond my book, The Wonder of Boys, they can get another book called Brain Sex, which lays this out even more clearly how this works. Uh, you know, they, they end up with, uh, I, I feel like a female, but I have testicles, and they get a sex change. And, and so that's a dramatic case of, of how testosterone was not secreted in the womb when it, when it ought to have been. And so the brain system that's developed doesn't fit the body, doesn't fit the genitals. Uh, more normally what happens is the testosterone does wash through the system of the, the mom, her womb, and, yeah, we end up with a little boy who comes out. And, of course, brain, uh, all this brain stuff is on a spectrum, so there's no one stereotype where, where this is a male brain and this is a female. The brain develops on a spectrum. It's just that the male brain tends toward a little more spatiality, uh, et cetera. Female brain tends toward more verbal, et cetera. Um, I want to always make that clear to people that we're not talking about some sort of uh, – single stereotype of a human yeah, no, no specific individual but on a broad average on a broad average and then what parents will do when they look at their kids is often they'll say uh, uh, you know uh, parents will come up to me after a talk and they'll say gosh you know the stuff you said about the spatiality now that really fits two of my boys but you know it doesn't fit my third boy he's more like this and so not every boy is going to fit well then how does this affect the feelings of a young boy well, the emotional life of boys, of little boys, is, is an amazing area to study. And the wonder of boys lays out some of the research. There's a, um, my, uh, my new book lays out more that will be coming out soon, A Fine Young Man. There's another book people should look at, Sex on the Brain. Here's what we know uh, so far. We know that, on average, little boys are more emotionally vulnerable and emotionally fragile than little girls. And here's what we mean by that. This isn't to take anything away from girls. And, and, of course, I have two daughters of my own, so uh, nothing that I'm saying is any way robbing either child. But what we know about the way the brain system develops is that the male brain lateralizes and is very tidy in the way that it uh, functions. So, in other words, females are dealing with their emotional life much more in both hemispheres of their brain, whereas little boys are dealing with it more in one hemisphere. Uh, that's one example. Uh, there are structural differences in the brain. For instance, this corpus callosum that is the bundle of nerves between the right and the left hemisphere. That's larger in females and smaller in males. So little girls have more crosstalk. So when they feel something in one hemisphere, they can get it over to the, next, to the other hemisphere, the left, to talk about it more quickly than the boys. Uh, now, this is tip of the iceberg. There are, I could go through hundreds of these differences. What we end up with is that the little boy can't process his feelings, on average, as quickly as a little girl. He will tend to become more frustrated uh, if he's pushed to try to process feelings quickly. He'll tend to have more delayed reaction than a little girl. He will not tend to be able to use as many, as many words to name his feelings as a little girl. Uh, also, uh, there's a deep difference in that he will tend to develop more psychiatric illness, more brain disorders, more thought disorders. In other words, he will tend to develop more disorders of the brain because the brain is more fragile. So when we try to relate emotionally with boys, it, when we, if we fully understand how their brains are working, we will often find ourselves trying to utilize less words with them and utilize more physical activity. We'll try to use, um, we'll try to let them have more time. For instance, when the boy's having the tantrum, um, you know, we don't talk to him about what he's feeling. We give him an hour or two. 
uh, depending on his age, if he's really, really young, he'll forget. But if he's six, seven, eight, uh, we give him a little more time than we may give the girl because he has a delayed reaction brain. We, we tend to help him find objects to work his feelings out with and on. So, for instance, if he can't talk about a feeling, we're more likely with a boy to give him uh, toys or sand painting or some other you know, art therapy or something else to help him get at the feelings because he's less able than the little girl to talk about his feelings and to do it with, with clarity. And we will also probably tend to let him um, uh, use inanimate objects as objects of anger more because he probably won't be able to use as many words. And so you know, if he needs to go hit a couch, obviously now we're talking about inanimate objects. He's not allowed to hit people or dogs or cats. But When you say um, not able to use as many words, um, that's in terms of expressing their feelings, but not as generally on the average in terms of uh, uh, their fund of words or the vocabulary that a little boy has. Well, actually, it's in both areas. Um, boys use less words than girls on average. This, by the way, continues all through life. Males use less words than females on average. Spoken or thought? No, spoken. Spoken words. And it doesn't matter in what, if you, we're taking volume of words. Now, if we're at a, uh, let's say we're at a business meeting, we may find a man who talks a lot more than the women at the business meeting. So in certain localized areas, we're going to find that males will use more words. Males will use more words in, um, for instance, male lawyers, we have studies of male lawyers and female lawyers, and the male lawyers use more words. They use more jargon. They use longer sentences. They're less concrete. So there are certain areas where males do use more words. But all through life, when we look at volume of word production by a male and a female, uh, we will find that the male on average uses about somewhere between three and five times less, which is statistically quite a bit. And if we look at little kids, if we look at a five-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl, uh, word, the word volume average is going to be around five times less for the boy. He's going to use around five times less. She'll use around five times more. But on average, people ought to remember that this happens all through life. So everything we say about the little boy and the little girl, a lot of, well, not everything, but a lot of it translates to marriages. Uh, translates to how men process feeling in marriages and women process feeling and how, um, for instance, Jennifer James, an urban uh, anthropologist, uh, gave me a study indicating that males are about seven times, these are adult males, take about seven times uh, or seven hours longer than adult females to process what's called hard emotive data. So we're talking about primary feelings like anger or fear or pain uh, or grief. Uh, so they take longer and then they use less words to talk about the feelings. So these are adults too. Michael, I want to take a moment and say uh, to our listeners that I'm talking this week with Michael Gurian, the author of The Wonder of Boys, uh, a book that deals with boys and men and how we are different from uh, girls and women. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Michael, this issue of words, um, the volume that are spoken, does that relate back um, to what we were talking about before, does it relate to something else, to the uh, chemicals in the brain? Well, it's, a, it's mainly about the brain system. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, well, where does it come from? It's um... Okay. It comes from a, the, the female brain is a more verbal brain, the male brain a more spatial brain. So um, the female brain will tend to produce more words, and it will tend to be able to attach those words more quickly to uh, especially to emotive 
data, so in other words, to make that clear, to emotions. Uh, it will tend to be able to do that better. The male brain, uh, its word production, again, we can all do everything, but if we're looking at tendencies where we're better, the tendency of the male brain is going to be to be better at the following. Abstract um, uh, discussions. The male brain will tend to, which, which tends to use more of the spatial or mathematical brain, mathematical discussions. Male brain will tend to be a little better at that. Uh, the male brain will tend to be better at pecking order, uh, hierarchical stuff, and a lot of that is because of testosterone, right, which is an aggression hormone, and, and because the brain system is set up, they're set up in tandem for the male to be more hierarchical, to care more about pecking orders, um, to talk more about them, and to use a lot of his words to prove his place in a pecking order, uh, whereas the female will not use as much of her word volume she doesn't care as much. Uh, again, tendencies. She uh, doesn't care as much about, uh, for instance, getting to be uh, the CEO of the corporation. The male, his testosterone makes him much more socially ambitious on average. Uh, and, and you can see here we're getting into a very complex area because uh, we have tended uh, in the last 20 or 30 years to say that the reason that females are not at the head of corporations is, is sexism, and it is. There's a lot of sexism in our culture. But what we know now is that it's also, it also has to do with biology. Um, males are spending more of their brain's energy on trying to get to the top of a pecking order. And <clears throat> their testosterone, which is an aggression hormone, makes them more aggressive in trying to do that. And uh, so, you know, we're starting to look at that. Those of us who are, who are feminists, we're saying, well, gosh, this kind of changes our feminism a little bit. It's not only sexism, it also is this. And when we look at kids, when we look at little girls and boys, and we watch how they play on the playground, um, the boys are spending more of their words figuring out, for instance, what the rules of the game are and who are, who's going to lead the game. Michael, let's uh, talk about tribes, something that we don't really have in uh, this part of um, of America, uh, time-wise, and the end of the 20th century America. And it's something that we had uh, uh, very clearly going back 150 years and, and prior in the history of our species. Yes. Well, and when we talk in the next program on adolescence, it's going to become an even bigger deal. Um, uh, when we look at littler boys, we, we, uh, it's a little easier for that little boy to to sort of live life without that tribe. But as he gets to be 8, 9, 10, 11, and he starts developing his separation from his mom and dad, uh, you know, especially his mom, and he starts trying to sort of become a, a man or become a young man, uh, he really needs a bunch of people around him, a tribe around him to help nurture him. And part of the reason is that everyone needs that, right? Males, uh, males and females other than mom and dad. Right. We're talking about, I develop in, in the book the idea of uh, the three-family system, that the, the boys, and, and this is true of girls as well, need really three families to raise them. Um, they need the primary care unit, which would be mom and dad, or two moms or two dads, however that's set up. Then they need the second family, which is extended family. And that might be grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles, but in our culture, because we live often far away from our blood kin, it can also be non-blood kin. Um, for instance, daycare can become second family, and uh, our godmothers, godfathers are second family, and mentors are second family. Um, I, as a parent, I have a number of best friends, and I get them involved in, as a community for my kids. That's second family. And then third family are generally institutions, so community institutions like churches, 
uh, schools, and in our culture, the media. And in our next program, we might want to talk more about that. Uh, the media is, is, has become like a family member to our kids. So these are three families that boys need. And one of the reasons that boys need so much of the tribal is, that, is the brain system and the testosterone. Testosterone is an aggression hormone, so it needs a lot of people to help manage it. It needs a lot of us to be helping boys figure out how to handle all that aggression. Let's talk about that in helping to uh, assist a 10-year-old boy in, in handling his aggression. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you mean like strategies? Strategies, exactly. Well, one thing, one thing we do I was referring to earlier was um, let him have inanimate objects to work out his, his uh, anger on, let's say. So let him have punching bags. Let him... Let him hit inanimate objects as he needs to. Get him into martial arts, you know, get him involved in physical activity to help him process emotion. That's a good strategy for a lot of kids that people are having troubles with. Um, another thing to look, about, uh, to look at when we talk about aggression is people, and I find especially moms, are starting to reassess what they mean by uh, aggression and what they mean by violence and where the line is between them. We have tended, because we have not understood males, we have tended to just think aggression's a bad thing. And in fact, it's not. It's essential. We all have it. And our males, some of our males have a lot of it. And so before we come up with little practical strategies, we have to reassess. And that's part of what the Wonder of Boys helps us do. Reassess what we think about aggression. We have to not go at aggression uh, as a bad thing. We have to just par shift our paradigm. No, aggression's not a bad thing. Aggression is energy, and it needs to be channeled. So if we go at it that way, then we start saying, well, if it's energy that needs to be channeled, what discipline system would we set up? And Chapter 7 of The Wonder of Boys is on discipline systems, how to set them up. And then it gives 12 practical tips, and I won't repeat them all here, uh, but little tips like how we use diversion for aggression rather than um, using brute force against aggression. Can you give an example? Yeah, like if we're talking about a little boy, let's say a five-year-old who's being who's tantruming um, and who's in the early stage of a tantrum, let's say, or who's pushing against us, uh, even trying to hit us. Uh, of course, first thing we do is we, we push him away from the hitting. He's not allowed to hit us. But as quickly as possible, we get him diverted to a place that's his own where he can, where he can use the Nerf bat to hit the bed if he wants. Let the aggression out without being destructive. Uh, right. A and if he has certain things... Um, well, there's a, there's a hierarchy here. Number one, he can never be destructive to an inanimate object. That is, I mean, sorry, to an animate object. That means a living thing. He can never hit his mom. He can never hurt the dog or the cat. That's, that's, num that's number one. Number two, he ought not destroy inanimate objects. However, within that, uh, if he has certain things that he uses, like um, his old, this old doll that he uses to grind up in his hands or in his teeth when he gets really angry, that's all right. He's destroying it, but he's using that, that old thing of his, that old blanket, uh, he's using it to um, help him process his feeling and get to know his own feelings. So, so we don't want to just say, oh my gosh, you know, if, if, he, if he hits a couch, he's going to end up hitting human beings. Uh, that's just not true. Uh, it is only true for people who are psychopaths. Uh, right? I mean, it's not true for kids who are raised in a healthy way. They, if they use that old blanket to grit their teeth on and to scream into, uh, it does not mean they're going to become um, hurtful to other human beings. So Let's, I want to clear well, up. I want to clear up something there. Um, you, 
you made an implication that I don't think you intended, that if people are not raised in a healthy way, that they will become psychopaths. Uh, oh, of course, I, no, I wasn't saying that. Um, I'm saying that when, when we can make the link between, um, for instance, for people who are rageaholics, uh, when we work with uh, people who have anger problems, you know, in anger management, we find that about 10, maybe 20% of those people are what we might call rageaholics. So those are people who we don't want to allow them uh, to get their rage up, even if it's with a blanket. We don't want that. Because they lose it. Yeah, because then they lose it and they can't control it. But for most human beings, and of course for 99% of our boys, um, it's fine to allow them to get their anger up, as long as it's channeled into, the, into healthy ways, not, against, not with hitting someone, but with inanimate objects. That, that was the point I was making there. In other words, punching bags or um, hitting a tree or something like that. Yeah, well, some people would say, let's not have them hit a tree because it's a living object. And, and I kind of, but I, I mean, within reason. Um, but if they're going to, let's say, I'll give an example. When I was a kid, we lived part of the time in the woods, and I, I would get a lot of anger. And my parents were pretty smart about, about giving me something to work it out on and they would give me an axe and they would tell me to go cut wood. Well, now that's an example of me cutting a tree, but in that case it's, it's sure. use. And that's wonderful. And, of course, we call, that, we call that gross motor activity. When we have a very aggressive child uh, uh, and we want that child to, to work this stuff out, we give them gross motor activity, lots of physical activity. Uh, for a while I lived in Hawaii. My parents lived in Hawaii, and they would have me open coconuts when I would get really mad. And boy, that takes that was a lot of gross motor activity. Well, Michael, that kind of thing. Michael Gurian, we're coming to the end of our time on this first uh, interview. And before we close, I'd like to ask you a question that uh, you've already answered three times, but I want to ask it again. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that uh, you would recommend? You've mentioned. Um, Brain sex and uh, a couple of others. Uh, specifically on the on the topic of boys or on well, whatever you've been reading that uh, you find interesting. Oh well, um, I would say uh, I would say the most e interesting recent book on all of the stuff I've been talking about would be um, uh, Sex on the Brain by Deborah Bloom. Mm -hmm. and that is a general book on on the male-female brain, and then, of course, for anyone wanting to focus this stuff on boys, uh, they'd want to get the wonder of boys. Well, Michael Gurian, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Michael Gurian is the author of a 1997 book entitled The Wonder of Boys, What Parents, Mentors, and Educators Can Do to Shape Boys into Exceptional Men. The book he recommends is Sex on the Brain by Deborah Blum. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. 
The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.